We're going to go ahead and get started. It's a minute early. All right, well, my name is Jared King. I am the uh, lead church planter for a new church in Seattle called Missio Church. Uh, we're going to be talking some about that, so I won't share too much of the story before we begin. Um, one of the things is I'm a part of the Kairos Church Planting Network, and we have some, what are these? These things over here. There you go. Why don't I just let Patty talk about this? Patty, everybody, works with Kairos, and there's some things that we would love for you guys to uh, fill out. So yeah, just a pamphlet, there's a tear-off, if you could hand that back to me at the end of the class, and we'll ask you to keep it. Yeah, um, that'd be awesome. We would love to have that and just to share more stories and things that are going on in the church planting world with Kairos. So um, this is a class, this, is, this class is called 100 Churches of 100, uh, Planting Churches in Post-Christian Contexts. And so if that's the class you're, you were expecting to be a part of, then... I'm glad you're here. If that's not the class you were expecting, then we'll awkwardly stare at you as you leave and go to the one that you're looking for. But um, in all seriousness, we're talking about planting new churches in post-Christian contexts in this class. And so I was really thinking about this entire concept and, and wrestling with the idea that there are a lot of assumptions that we carry into a class like this. I mean, any class that you go to in Pepperdine, there are assumptions and presuppositions that you're carrying into the class with you, right? And so some of the assumptions that we may have is that we all know and understand what this term and idea of post-Christian even is. Uh, I think we assume maybe that we even know what church planting means, or, or I may assume that you guys know what it's like to live in Seattle. And so there are tons of these assumptions. There are tons of of presuppositions that I think we carry into a class like this. And so there's something that I want to try tonight. There's something that I want us to do together. And I don't know if classes at Pepperdine typically do something like this, but this is my class, so we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> and we're just going to run with it. But one of the things is that we can't, we can't remove all the assumptions. We can't remove all the presuppositions in a class like this. But what I want to try to do is at least level the playing field a little bit. I want to try to uh, remove some of those, those confusion, the, the misunderstandings about what we're talking about so that we can all kind of be on the same, at least close to the same level, um, so that we can kind of move forward together in this conversation together. Uh, what we're talking about tonight is, is planting in post-Christian contexts. So I, I want to start by saying if you struggle to know what that term means, if you've never heard that before, or if this is something that you're wrestling with, it's okay. You're not alone in that. We all struggle to understand what this idea of being post-Christian means. And if people are up here telling you that they have it all figured out, then they're lying to you. Because this is something that is rapidly changing in our world. It's changing and shifting in our culture, and it's really kind of hard to understand and pinpoint. But we're going to try to at least create a working understanding of it. Uh, tonight and how to engage in those kinds of contexts and how to to birth new churches in contexts that are predominantly post-Christian. So I want to do a couple of things. First, I just want to give you a, a working definition. The thing, the way that I have defined 
post-Christian typically is the movement of Christian values, Christian practice, Christian understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, Scripture, all of these things are moving to the margins of the dominant culture. Right? And so that's kind of the working definition. So whereas in, in Christendom, in more predominantly Christian cultures, Christianity was firmly at the heart of culture. Right? So we, it informs our social practice, our political bent, our, our value system. It all held a predominantly Christian uh, value set. But in post-Christian cities, all of these things have been pushed to the margins. And they're fighting to find a place. And honestly, they're really struggling to survive in a lot of places, in a lot of post-Christian cities. These Christian values that we know of. And so coming up with a definition, it, it may seem challenging, but it's actually a lot easier than what I want us to do in this next part, okay? So we, we have a working definition, but I want us to describe post-Christian, okay? But before we do that, there's a difference between defining something and describing that thing, right? Those are two very different things. Uh, describing how something feels and looks and, and sounds like and how it interacts with things, it's different than creating a definition. And so I want to take a few minutes and I just want us to think, when you think of post-Christian, describe it to me. Who do you think of? What do you think of? What kind of expectations do people have on their families or their finances or all of these things? And this is the, this is the part of, I know it's 9 o'clock, but this is the participatory part of this class, okay? I want you to tell me, when you hear that word post-Christian, what do you think of? Describe it to me. One thing I think about is my neighbor who uh, comes back from a trip down to Atlanta and he says, you know, I went down to a church there and I went to this experience and, and looking at that like an experience, like we might go to a Buddhist temple to just kind of experience it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's something that is, let's go kind of see this as a show or as a relic of the past that we can go and take a look at. Okay, yeah, for sure. What else? What are some things? Yeah. I think about my job where just the values are totally non-Christian that are being forced upon us. Okay. And you either be quiet or if you speak, you might have to sit home, you know? For sure. What else? Yeah. I think of where the name Jesus Christ has become an expression as opposed to Lord. Okay. Yeah. What else? Yeah. I think there's two ways that the two veins, if you have a church kid who was raised by Christian parents and then they're exposed to a post-Christian culture, then they enter into this deconstruction process, mm -hmm. you know, in their adult life of that uh, you know, makes them question everything that their parents instilled in them. And then there's the person that never was exposed to Christianity mm -hmm. or you know, I think about my friend Aaron who has never really even gone to church besides a funeral. Mm -hmm. He's 30, you know, some odd years old. He's, I guess he's 40 now. And he just really hasn't had any exposure. He's a good person. He does good things. But then crossing over to having a conversation with Jesus, he's just not interested in. Mm -hmm. So it's a lack of like, engagement with the 
Yeah. Definitely. What's Caleb? I find fun, I find it really interesting to look at ethics for mm -hmm. post-Christian people. I find most of my post-Christian friends have very strong senses of ethics, and they will stand up for them and decry people who don't share those ethics. Mm -hmm. But I was sort of taught in church that you have Christian ethics or no ethics. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really interesting yeah. thing to try to pull apart. Right. Okay, what makes this person tick? Mm -hmm. They think this is wrong and this isn't. <coughs> Why? Like right. what is, and very rarely does someone go, oh, the presuppositions of my ethical system are blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> right. like, yeah. And so uncovering that is always very important. Yeah. And, and I will, go ahead, yeah. Uh, it reminds me of the joke about the teacher asking the students, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And the student says, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the things that you find when you do something like this in a room with, you know, just as many people are in here, is that we're, we're usually pretty good at defining things, but when it comes to describing something, that's when it gets a little bit fuzzy and challenging. You know, if I was to ask you to define what basketball is, there would be, wouldn't be a ton of variance in, in defining basketball. But if I was to ask you to describe it, then there would be many different things when people would be talking about different styles of offense or European versus American style of basketball or defensive schemes and things like that. And, and it would be kind of this makeup of very different ways that we see the game of basketball in order to describe it. And I think the reason is when we're defining something, we're creating a short, memorable sentence or two that it, it, it attempts to encapsulate the breadth of the thing that we're defining. But when we're describing something, we're getting into the details of what that thing looks like and feels like and sounds like and acts like and interacts with the things that are around it. And I think this is where some of the problem lies because when we're looking, when we're all looking at the same thing, right? If we're all looking at a ball in the middle of the room, we tend to describe it from the angle in which we're viewing it, right? And so we're all looking at it from, from a different angle and we're describing the things that we see. But that's when we're, we're saying probably different things, right? To describe the very same thing that we're looking at. I think this is what typically happens when we talk about things like post-Christianity. Is, is we can all basically define it. For better or worse, we can define something like that. But, but we start really speaking different things when we're trying to describe it because it's something that is really challenging and we all have different perspectives and we live in different places and so it's hard for us to describe. It's hard for us to kind of put some, some good words to. So I want to ask another question. Just take a couple minutes. What, are, what do you feel when you hear the, the phrase post-Christian? What are the emotions that come out of you? When people say things like, our country is moving from a predominantly Christian cultural context to a predominantly post-Christian cultural context, what do you feel? Okay. I think Rick said kind of this sermon about just how Christians, we don't know how to, there's not a lot of advice in the Bible for how to live in the majority. Yeah. It's just much more true the early Christian experience when we don't have the power, maybe that's for the better. Yeah. For the gospel. For sure. Along with that, I, I would say unprepared. Mm -hmm. I, I really feel that I've coasted along for a lot of years doing what we've done with the majority sure. now we're reaching to uh, a world that's 
uh, not in the majority, right. and, and they're not interested. So. It's exciting, sure. Yeah. What else? Demanding. Demanding. Very demanding. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. My feeling is that a lot of post-Christian is post-Christian because it's a reaction to culture and society that were that was Christian externally. Mm -hmm. Nominal discipleship. And, and it's mm -hmm. a reaction to hypocrisy and, and a lot of words, but not real living. So in that sense, it's exciting and a step forward, yeah. a step in a sense we need to move away from religion in a sense and the politics of it mm -hmm. to get to the heart of what Christian really is. Yeah. Well, you guys ruined my presentation because I was hoping you say would say things like fear and that kind of stuff, but <laughs> yeah, I, I got close. I'll, I'll say, it. say it. I'll say. It. Yeah. Well, I think that people that come to Pepperdine aren't going to say that. Yeah. The churches we came from are going to use words like disgusted. Yep. Afraid. Absolutely. Um, they're they're going to talk about, as you mentioned, you know, they're at work they're, and they're yeah. They they. they, 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 they It's exciting to hear some of those things that you're that you're feeling. Um, a lot of the times when people, when I hear people talk about it, there is a couple of responses. Either it's fear and anxiety, with not knowing what church is supposed to look like in a world that's changing, or not knowing what my kids are going to grow up in and how they're going to engage in the world around them. Right. So there's a lot of hesitation and fear, but there, some of the times there's denial of it. Right. There's this, uh, it's not really a thing, it's a fad, it's going to go away, and so we can just kind of ignore it and push it under the rug. But part of what we're wanting to do tonight is just kind of normalize the conversation so that we can go back to our churches and have uh, conversations that are normalizing this idea that the world is shifting and changing because it's not a bad thing, it's just the reality of what is. And we can kind of fight against it or we can start working and figure out, okay, so what does that mean to actually engage what's taking place around us? And how do we effectively move into the spaces of our world that are changing and present the gospel in a way that makes it real for people? And that's what we want to do tonight. So we're going to do that in three different ways tonight. There's, this is kind of the outline for the rest of this evening. First, I just want to tell you the story of, of Missio Church. And, and, and not because it's the church that we've been starting for the last couple of years, but mostly it's just because it's one example of what's taking place in a very post-Christian context like Seattle. And so I just want to share some of the things that we've been doing. 
I want to share a concept with you that we've been really forming over the last couple of years that is helping us process and understand how to plant churches in post-Christian contexts, and that concept is simply called the kingdom ecosystem, and so we'll walk through some of that. And then I just want to end by talking about what it means to fight for community rather than falling into community. <clears throat> so two days ago, um, Missio Church, the church that we moved to Seattle three years ago to help bring into existence. It launched publicly in the Northgate neighborhood of North Seattle, and it was an incredible moment for this, this awesome, beautiful church. It, it was the culmination of three years of developing credibility and forming teams and creating systems that, can, that could hold a vision. And then it was just simply celebrating the incredible work that God has been doing in those three years. It was a beautiful expression um, of what's been forming. And one of the things that we believe is that it was a great expression in a way to see that the way church planning is being done is, is changing. And, and the more that post-Christian or cities become post-Christian, it's going to continue to change and shift. And that's an okay thing. But one of the things that we did on Sunday was that we highlighted all of the partnerships that have helped us create uh, Missio, the church that we've been a part of. We, we invited people from the Northgate Elementary School that we're in partnership with and had people come and, and be a part of that. And we had people from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, which is a growing relationship that we're developing. And we had our campus ministry and some students that were there and people from different retirement centers that we are engaged in, uh, people from our local gyms, uh, some of the core people in our church we met in our gym and their parents are in the room, which is nuts that that is real and happening. Um, we had people from local community councils and neighborhood associations that were a part of that morning with us and people from just different organizations and partnerships and relationships. They showed up to help us celebrate Jesus in this, in this new space. It was this really incredible moment. And we had partners from, from Ethos Church, you know, 2,000 miles away that flew in to be a part of this and then partners from the Woodenville Church of Christ, 30 miles away, who came to be a part of it with us. It was a beautiful expression, a wonderful thing, um, developing relationships. And, and the reason that it's important that I share this moment with you, the reason that it's important to start a conversation with, with this moment, is because for most of us in the Christian world, many of our churches in our fellowship around the country they have this deeply rooted fear and anxiety with the truth that, the, that the, the landscape of the culture in our country is shifting and changing in front of them. And it's hard because we don't have really any concept of what to do and where to go and how to engage and how to build and plant and all that kind of stuff. And, and when we don't know what's forward, and we, there's uncertainty involved, there tends to be fear, right? There tends to be fear that begins to develop. When we have no way to navigate because the compass that we've been using for how to do church is changing right before our eyes, then we tend to do a couple of things. We either ignore that the, that the things are changing and we, and we double down on the, on the same things that we've been doing, or we acknowledge that things are changing and we decide to implement some changes, some kind of cosmetic things that we can change like new websites or or new uh, bulletins, which I'm not saying are bad things, but we focus on those rather than the reality, rather than dealing with the reality 
that the way people process information, the way that they come to belief, the way that they engage in the world has shifted so dramatically and comprehensively. And the small changes that we make are, are, are simply, they're not keeping up with the, the, the pace of the change in our world. And so we had people that would tell us, yeah, Seattle was way too hard. There were way too many social issues like, like uh, marijuana and homosexuality and gender identity and, and, and drug abuse and homelessness and all of these things are in our city. And that, and that people in Seattle, they don't want to be told that they're, that they're living a life that may be different from what God wants for them. And they don't even want to know that God has anything to do with the world, right? So we were told this is going to be too hard. It's going to be too hard to do this, to plant in post-Christian context. And yet, one of the things that I've become convinced of in the three years that we've been there is that planting churches, yes, it is going to be incredibly challenging in post-Christian contexts. It is going to be very, very difficult. And oftentimes it's going to feel like you're running uphill with this two-ton boulder strapped to your back. But at the same time, there's no greater joy than discovering what God is doing in places where church is absent. And so in a lot of post-Christian cities, um, per the percentage of believing adults is going to dip well below 10%. And in some parts of those cities, it's going to be as low as 2 to 3% of people that have belief of any kind. I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm talking about belief in, in some sort of higher being. And oftentimes, churches do not exist in those places. And so in a one-mile radius around the Space Needle, uh, there is, which is a very prominent place in Seattle, by the way, lots <laughs> of people live there. There is 2% belief in a one-mile radius around the Space Needle. And I can count on one hand the churches that I know of that exist in that one-mile radius that are doing something in that space. But part of the joy that we have experienced is discovering that, that God is doing some of his, his most amazing work, some of his best work in the places of greatest resistance that we feel like the church cannot exist in. And God is doing some amazing, amazing things. There have been few things that have brought us more joy than seeing people discover Jesus for the first time or beginning to rediscover that the church is a place that can be a place of meaning and family and community. So it's a really amazing thing. And while, yes, post-Christian church planting, it's going to be different than, than church in, in Christendom, maybe. <clears throat> One of the things remains the same, regardless of the cultural bent of a city, that there is unparalleled joy in discovering what God is doing and his movement and passion for people, and then watching as he seeks out those people and he continues to build his church in those places. Because God's not going to let his church die. God is there and he's building up something. So the most important thing that we can learn about planting in post-Christian contexts is that God is faithful. That God is going to build things. And most of the time we need to have this posture of a willingness to step into what he is doing and trust that he's going to build. Trust that he is going to lead. And so the launch of Missio for us is a reminder that God is faithful, even when we don't fully get the what or the how or the when. God's movement is unshakable. And there has been great joy in standing in the gaps, 
shoulder to shoulder with God like he calls us to in Ezekiel chapter 22. So last year I was teaching a class on some of the things that we had been learning about planting churches in Seattle. And I was telling this story about a guy named Guillermo. And I don't think, I don't remember if any of you were in that class. If, if you were, then you're going to hear this story again. But Guillermo is the family support worker at the Northgate Elementary School, which is a school that is in our neighborhood that we partner with. And, and Northgate Elementary has 30 different languages spoken. <clears throat> some of these languages Google doesn't translate, and a couple of them are unwritten languages. I mean, this is an incredibly diverse school. There's 25% homelessness at Northgate Elementary, and it is one of the most underserved uh, schools in our city. And so every year, uh, the Seattle Union Gospel Mission organizes this citywide serve day where, where, where uh, churches come and they partner with schools, they cancel their, their worship gatherings, and they serve by doing all sorts of things, painting and building or whatever it is that they do. And so last year, I was meeting with Guillermo and one of the district representatives, and I was asking him, what can we do for Northgate Elementary? And so he says, I want, to, I want you to paint a mural. So I'm like, okay, what's the mural of? He starts describing to me this mural where there's a river in the middle of the mural. And on one side are these children from, from Mexico that are running towards the river with these soldiers with guns behind them. And on the other side uh, of the river is evangelical Christianity. And they're not welcoming people in. They're not trying to help the kids. Instead, they've built a wall of crosses to keep his kids out. And this is the mural that he's telling a local pastor that he wants me to, to paint on the walls. And I'm like, let's get that approved by the district before we, <laughs> we dive into that one. But this is the perception that Guillermo has of evangelical Christianity in a city like Seattle. And honestly, he is representative of so much of what people see from, from church in our city. That church is something that is not for anything except for their own self-preservation. And honestly, this is what he would have believed in this time. That church is a place for white people to come and gather and have this fun little thing where they can celebrate what they are and who they are and all that kind of thing. That's his perception of what church is in Seattle. So we kept serving and loving Northgate and, and doing many different things with their harvest festivals and things like that throughout the year. And so we got to the point where we were inviting people to our launch just that happened two days ago. And I decided I wanted to invite Guillermo, but I wanted to invite him for a very specific reason because we were taking up a collection and we were, give, were giving 100% of what we took up on launch Sunday to... to Northgate Elementary to buy copy paper for them. So it was something that we wanted to do. So I decided I wanted to invite Guillermo to come and speak about what partnership means for, between us and, and them. And, and I'll remember this moment for, for, forever because he gets up and he starts talking about how every time he sees people come to serve at his school, whether it's people in churches or people who want nothing to do with churches or nothing to do with belief, when he starts to, to search out why that they're there, he keeps coming back to the reality that it's because of the heart of Jesus in them. That Jesus is, a, is the thing that would make people do what we are doing. He says whether they show up because they want to be a part of a, or they're part of a church or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because when people are serving, or when people are showing up to serve, that's the heart of Jesus in them. 
I mean, this is, this is a year, right? That's passing from when he's talking about this mural where he's describing what church looks like to this moment where he is proclaiming in front of our church that when people show up to serve his people, that that's the heart of God in them. It was just a beautiful, amazing moment because he, he's on this amazing journey of faith that is going to take years to continue, years to unfold. You know, planting in post-Christian context is going to be long and slow. Sometimes it feels impossible. But it's one of incredible joy as you watch God create moments of clarity about who he is. But we're talking about planting a hundred churches of a hundred. And so how do you even do something like that in a post-Christian context? So I want to share this. I want to share one of the things that we've been working on which has helped us to kind of visualize and capture what, what God is doing across our city and to help us understand how we can potentially plant 100 churches in, in Seattle. And we call this the kingdom ecosystem. And so if you know what an ecosystem is, just simply, um, it's a simply a community of interacting organisms and their physical environment, okay? And so typically when we think of an ecosystem, we think of plants and animals in a specific area or a region that depend on each other for survival, okay? And, and part of the key of an ecosystem is that there are different species with different needs and they eat different foods and they have different things that, that make up who they are, but all of them together need each other in order to survive. And that's what an ecosystem is, right? So one of the things that we see in cities across our nation, but but especially in cities where there, is, where there are numerous amounts of churches, is there is this silo mentality that begins to be created. Which is this mentality that says, I'm here to build the things that I want to do. I want to be self-sustaining, self-supporting, and all of these things that you guys have heard, right? And so what happens is you have a church who says, I want to build a a food bank for, for people who need that. And then there's 15 other churches that want to build a food bank. And then these different silos rarely interact or engage with each other. And I'm not saying it's bad to, to want to build food banks. That's not what I'm saying. But what happens is, when we do this is that pockets of people tend to be overlooked when we're not in communication with each other, when we're operating in silos. And then oftentimes what happens is that pockets of people begin to be competed over. Because we need those people in our church. That's who we need. We need them here. And so what, to me, this kind of weakens the sense of mission that an entire city can go on together. When people are operating in silos of each other. And so what the kingdom ecosystem looks to harness and leverage is it looks to, to leverage all of the kingdom resources of a city to help achieve big picture vision and goals. Okay, so rather than each church or religious group assuming that they have to take on every problem of the city, they are then empowered to do in-depth cultural exegesis of the place that they, are, that they are most immediately in and to discover the needs of that place, whatever those needs are, whether it's you know, whether it's poverty or homosexuality or whatever it is that they see as a need to engage in, they can then take that and look at the kingdom ecosystem and say, how can we together help solve the problems that we see in our space? Rather than feeling like they have to solve it all on their own. 
And so just to kind of give an example of this, the, the Epic Life Church is a church that we are in partnership with, and they're less than a mile down the road from us. Actually, Missio and Epic Life both exist in the Northgate neighborhood. But, but Epic Life is on the west side of I-5, and, and Missio is on the east side of I-5. And that may mean absolutely nothing to you guys who don't know what I-5 is, but I-5 is this mental barrier that splits Northgate into two very distinct neighborhoods. But it's all technically, by the city standard, one large neighborhood. And so on Epic Life's side of I-5, on the west side of I-5, um, Northgate is very low income, lots of poverty, homelessness, and, and there, that's where all the pot shops are, that's where a lot of prostitution happens. And so Epic Life has really developed well how to engage in that demographic and population. And, on, and on, on the east side of I-5, there's a lot less of that poverty. There's a lot less homelessness, but there's a lot of apartments and, and things like that. So there's loneliness or, or um, isolation, different problems that are emerging. And so what we have done is that we've said instead of us saying we need to start um, ministries that are, that are focused on poverty, focused on homelessness, what we're going to do is partner with Epic Life because they're already building things that work really, really well. And so what we do is we send volunteers and we send resources to go and help them increase their capacity to meet the needs of the space that they're in. And for, for them, what they have done is they've handed over the reins of Northgate Elementary, a place where they had a lot of a missional focus, and they've said, you guys have more giftedness and your people are more readily available to serve in that space. So you're going to take the lead on that. And so Epic Life comes and they participate in things that we're doing so we can do four projects on our city serve day rather than two projects. So that's one way that the kingdom ecosystem seeks to look at what is there and what is taking place in your city to say, how can we better leverage who we are so that all of us can better serve the people that are in our spaces rather than trying to compete and fight against one another. But that's just how we serve. You know, there's also this growing network of about 14 churches in, in North Seattle that are coming together to ask really big questions. Questions like, how do we, how do we plant these 100 churches of 100 people? How do we fund them? How do we, how do we train these people? How do we find church planters? And so what, our, what the kingdom ecosystem concept is that we're developing helps us do is it helps us look at, at the, the churches and the spaces that we're involved in together and say, where can these church planters come from? Who are the people that are ready to step into training and, and begin to, uh, to, to step into this new role? Who, where, where is the funding for this kind of thing? And so we, have, we had the North Seattle United uh, Worship Gathering back in August. It was these 14 churches from 11 different denominations came together for one uh, Sunday morning worship gathering. And we took this collection, and 100% and of that collection went to the four church plants that are in that 14 churches, that make up those 14 churches. Another thing, another idea that we've been, been working with is getting investors to help buy pieces of property in Seattle, because property is ridiculously expensive in Seattle. And then building uh, several units on it, selling some of them to pay back the original investment. But then there's other 
those other units would be used for, for church planting families that they could live with a lot less rent uh, on laying on their shoulders. And so actually, the Epic Life Church was giving two pieces of property right around their building. And so this kingdom ecosystem, these churches that are partnering together are trying to figure out how do we, how do we build and how do we rezone so that we can do some of this stuff. We're trying to build a barn together so that church planters, church plants can store their stuff in the barn rather than in our homes because it gets disastrous when all of our church stuff is all over the place. So it's trying to say, how can we leverage what is here? How can we work together to help build the kingdom up and out? You know, I think this is oftentimes really great in theory. You hear concepts like this at Pepperdine. It's like, that's great in theory. But does it really actually work? This is something that we need to kind of figure out and develop out. But what I tend to believe is that the more post-Christian a place becomes, the greater the need for a kingdom ecosystem to be developed out becomes. And actually, the more post-Christian a city becomes, typically the greater the willingness for churches and, and church planters to be involved in that kingdom ecosystem becomes. Because we realize that if, we, if we're isolating ourselves, if we're doing it alone, then we, we're not going to go very far. We're not going to go very far. And we're really starting to see some of the kingdom fruit of the kingdom ecosystem developed out in Seattle. It's really fun. So I want to give you just a few, four guiding principles on what we've been discovering from the kingdom ecosystem and what it, what it can look like. Okay, so four kind of guiding principles. The first one is, in the kingdom ecosystem, you have to celebrate uniqueness. You celebrate uniqueness. You know, typically we fight over our differences, right? Our differences tend to be the things that drive in chasms, right? They, they just rip things apart. And when we focus on differences, it's impossible to see the places where we're the same, where we can partner together. And so in this kingdom ecosystem idea, we really have to change the language from differences to uniqueness. Because there are uniquenesses in, across the Christian world. And they can be celebrated. While we are still maintaining our, our heritage, our, our theology, we can celebrate other people's differences. So we celebrate differences. The second thing is we unite in Jesus. Ultimately, uniting in Jesus is obviously the thing that we want to do. But oftentimes when people look at how to engage in partnership with other people, there are these lists of things that we have to, to meet before we enter into partnerships and relationships with them. That's typically how we do things. Do you meet the list of criteria? And as we've been kind of trying to develop this kingdom ecosystem idea, we've said the thing that we're going to unite around is Jesus. We're going to allow the, the churches that are a part of this then to dig deep into their theology and methodology in their spaces. And we will do the same with ours. But when we're coming together for, to, to kind of figure out this kingdom idea, what we're going to do is we're going to unite around Jesus. So first thing is we celebrate uniqueness. Second, we unite in Jesus. The third thing is not all partnerships are created equal. If you're trying to map out what the kingdom is doing in a city and then try to have the same level of, of relationship with all of it, you're going to kill yourself. And so we operate by the four C's of partnership. The four C's of partnership 
pretty simple, are connected, cooperative, collaborative, and covenant. And with each of these, as you get down here, there is, there is both a level or, or an expectation of time and energy that you're putting into that partnership. And as these go down, the time and energy that is involved in these partnerships increases, right? And so one of the things that's really important in the, in the kingdom ecosystem is, is understanding what a partnership looks like and is supposed to look like. And so we have connected partnerships with churches that are across the city that we only see maybe once or twice a year over coffee just to encourage one another. That's a connected relationship. It's not something that we just simply avoid or anything like that, but it's not something that we're going to engage in, in with any depth because we just simply can't because of space. And so it's a connected relationship. We have cooperative relationships with things like the Seattle Union Gospel Mission, where we, we come together. It takes a little bit more time and energy because we're there to achieve a project or a goal, which is the Seattle Serve Day that happens every year. So there's a little bit more investment that is involved in that level of relationship. We have collaborative relationships with things like the uh, North Seattle Pastors Gathering that we have once a month where, where we're doing routine and regular projects together. And then definitely the Missio Church, the Epic Life Church, and the Roots Community Church are in a collaborative relationship, as close as they can be to this last one without actually being in there. Because we're sharing office space, we're sharing our people, we're sharing um, our resources. And so one of the things is the Roots Community Church a couple weeks ago, they had their, their whole worship team was out of town or sick or something like that. And so we sent our worship pastor down there to lead worship with them. And then a couple of weeks after that, all of my, all of my worship team was in Canada at a worship conference. And so we had uh, the worship team from the Hallows Church, which is a different church, come and they led worship with us. And we have, we have volunteers that are a part of our church that go and volunteer in other churches' ministries. And that's a collaborative relationship where there is a lot of time and a lot of energy being invested in those relationships. And this covenant relationship is the thing that takes the most time and the most energy. And so for us, a covenant relationship is like with Kairos church planting. Where Kairos has invested their time, their energy, their resources to train us, to build us up. They are our employers. They are all of these things. That's a covenant relationship because it takes a lot of, a lot of different pieces, right, in that partnership. And so in the kingdom ecosystem, really understanding what it is that you're asking people to partner with you is super important. Because not all partnerships are created equal, and you have to understand that. And so the last thing, the fourth thing in this kingdom ecosystem principle is that a kingdom, the kingdom ecosystem hopes to accomplish, what it hopes to accomplish is a sustainable way to build up kingdom capital across your city. Okay, and so kingdom capital is simply defined by five things. Your spiritual influence, the relationships you have, both how many and the quality of those relationships, the ideas that you have about what to do, when to do them, strategies and those kinds of things, the funds that you have available, 
and then and then your just physical ability that you have, your, your craftsmanship, your artistic abilities, your time and energy. And so the kingdom ecosystem is looking at all of the things that God is doing in a city, and it's trying to say, how can we together raise the spiritual capital of this entire city to be more spiritually influential, to be connected to more people, to have, to have more ideas of what it could look like to do church in this city, to, to have more resources that can fund different things that we want to build and create, and then to have more uh, a higher capacity of giftedness and the things that we bring to the table. So that's what it, it seeks to grow and to build. And so that's kind of that's kind of loosely. This is a thing that we've still been working through and developing. The kingdom ecosystem is a way for us to see and leverage what God is already doing in a city to help you achieve the vision that you have for a place. So I just want to kind of end with this last thing about fighting for community versus falling into it. My wife was just talking with the Kairos team and she was telling them that launching a new church in a post-Christian context, it's exciting, but it's a demanding task. And typically people do not just simply fall into community. They're not going to fall into church. It's something that we have to fight for. We have to fight for people. You know, as people of faith, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but we are fighting for people. We're fighting that they would have this opportunity to, to experience who Jesus is because we believe that, that Jesus can do something miraculous in their lives. So we fight for people. And so one of the defining characteristics that we have discovered about planting in post-Christian context is that you as a planter or you as a, as a minister, you as a church, a group of people, and definitely the people in your city will not simply fall into Christian community. They won't. You have to be willing to fight to form community, to build community. We have to be willing to fight for people. So the CrossFit gym that my wife and I go to regularly, when we were first moved to Seattle, and it was a time of transition, and, and uh, we were a lot of uncertainty with what it was that we were doing. CrossFit was the one thing that we knew how to control. We knew how to work out. Right, so it was that place of like safety for us. And honestly, for a long time, we didn't want it to have anything to do with our ministry because we wanted that escape. But as we kept going there and we got to know the people at our gym, we really longed for them to be a part of the things that we were building and creating. And so slowly we started to, to not ignore those people, but to fight for those people to fight to bring them into community. And that's where we met Nathan and Megan, who are a core part of our church. Our CrossFit coach came to our Easter Sunday several weeks ago, and we had a, a lady uh, that we're friends with at our gym who came to our launch. The first time that she's, that she's been a part of that. We're starting to see conversations of faith begin to emerge in people who have simply no desire to be a part of church, to have those conversations. Those, they're beginning to emerge because we're fighting for those people. 
Those people are not just going to magically show up at Missio. They're not going to fall into Missio. Because the framework of their, of their worldview prohibits that from being an option for them. It just simply doesn't feel like a possibility for them. But as you fight for people, what happens is that option, not just for, for Missio or for your church, but for Jesus, it starts becoming an option for them. And they start seeing that as something that maybe they could participate in. But it's not going to just simply happen. You've got to fight for it. You know, 100 churches of 100 people. That is, that's the vision that we see for Missio Church, the things that we're doing. And we don't know if that means we're going to be planting 30 or 50 or 10 of those churches. We don't really know what it looks like. But we know that God has called us to that vision. And we are a part of developing the space and the structure for that vision to begin to become reality in this city. Planting churches in post-Christian cities, it can be scary, it can be wildly expensive, and sometimes it can feel impossible, but I'm convinced that God has something big in store for cities like Seattle and New York and L.A. and all these post-Christian cities that are, that are coming about in our country. And he's waiting for people to step into the gap. Step into the gap with him on behalf of those cities. And it's an exciting thing. It's a great place to be. Um, that's all I have. I want to kind of open it up for questions. We have a few minutes. Uh, if there's no questions, that's okay. Um, because I don't have really good answers. But... Um, no, I do have actually really excellent answers. So any questions that you have? Yeah. Perhaps this is to expand your point. Um, yeah. Do you feel the need to change your language? Yes. In other words, we tend to talk about grace and we say that grace against us. Yeah, no, in that context, no, we don't, I don't change that kind of language. The way that we change language in, in, is by doing cultural exegesis of a place. And so actually it was really kind of funny that you bring that up because we had one of my friends named Matt from, from the Ethos Church in Nashville came and he did all the video for our launch. And afterwards he was saying, man, you preached a sermon that I feel like you would hear in Nashville, but the language was just so different. The words that you used seemed very Seattle. I said, well, I hope so because that's where I live. I mean, I would, I would hope that it would sound Seattle. And so... No, we don't not talk about grace and, and, and salvation and those types of things, but you can explain them. I, I mean, in a sense, I'm not using particularly this, that specific words, but use the concept yeah. applied to their... Yeah, I think which, oftentimes we just say that, peop, that churches tend to speak Christianese, yeah. and they talk in ways that most people don't get. And what we're, what we're trying to do is... is speak the way that our, that our people speak. Uh, yeah, Caleb. So this is a really boring practical question. I love this. I see, I see 100 people. Yeah. And I love how like local and contextualized that can be. Mm -hmm. But there also are economies of scale. Yeah. Right? Like very few churches of 100 have three staff members. Yeah. Them, oh, absolutely. Too. But you guys started to broach what it would look like to share a youth minister or to share a campus minister or like go to a place where 
the fact that you're capping off at 100 yeah. doesn't stop from starting to provide some of those services right. that people sort of expect for a church that you can't always provide your own people. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. I just want to say, for one, uh, we don't cap things at 100. That's just a good marketing thing. <laughs> okay. um, so we're not like, whoa, 101, guys. Someone take a hike. Um, <laughs> No, that's, but yeah, so, so one of the things is there's a youth minister at the Epic Life Church and not at the other two churches that we're in relationship with, and we're trying, we're actually trying to figure that specific question out with youth ministry and what it looks like to have a, a training ground for people who can engage in youth ministry without it being a full-time position. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's totally undeveloped. <laughs> But we're trying to think creatively on what it could look like, you know. So yeah, yeah. What was your particular training? What what kind of what made you, you know, what, what did you do specifically to prepare for this kind of thing? Um, well, one, I grew up in Portland, so um, I, uh, that to me helps with speaking the cultural language. Uh, it's a big thing. Um, but two, I mean, I, I did the typical training. I, I went to Harding School of Theology, all that kind of stuff. But then. Mostly through, that's right, Kevin Burr, hey man. <laughs> um, mostly through Kairos Church Planting, they do, they do very intensive training for how to engage in, in these kind of cultural contexts. Um, we spent two and a half years at the Ethos Church doing their um, church planter training. Um, but a lot of it's just asking lots and lots and lots of questions of the people who are in our city. Um, and learning a lot from them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, I don't know if that helps, but that's where I've learned some things. Yeah. One of years ago, Dan Harden pointed out that the closer a language is to your language, the easier it is to learn until it gets very close. And so Americans often make major linguistic faux pas in Canada <laughs> because it's too close. Yeah. And they don't learn that difference. Are there any, I would assume that the same thing is true for cultural exegesis. The closer the language is to you, uh, the culture is to yours, then it still becomes harder when it gets too close. So Are there online tools or written tools that would help us? It's hmm. a great question. And here in California, that's a particular problem where so many church leaders came from Texas. So, um, kind of clarify your question a little bit, because. Are there tools? that can help people do cultural exegesis? Print tools or online tools? Oh, yeah. Talk to people about how to do that. Oh, for sure, yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there. The problem is, is you're going to have to filter through what's good and what's not. Um, I would say talking to a guy like Stan Granberg, you know, he would have a whole lot more uh, knowledge with some of those tools because, honestly, he's the guy I go to when I need a tool. So. <laughs> And I'll just say that because he's my father-in-law. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, there are, there's a lot of things out there. Um, filtering through it is kind of hard. Yeah. Well, I think just to kind of answer that, one of the things that you are, or have already said is ask a lot of questions. Yeah, oh, for sure. Community. So the, the best way to do it is to go to people in the community and just start talking to them. So yeah. At the school, at the city council or you know different places around the community be in, be in right. the community instead of in your building and you'll learn yes the culture you can do things like cultural mapping
taking a neighborhood and start mapping it out. What are the services? What are the churches? What's the demographics? Just all the you know demographical studies and, and mapping that out. But then you can also do things that are called asset mapping. And you can look at the, the things that you have in your spheres of relationships and what, are, what, are, what do you have? What are the things that are at your disposal? Um, the giftedness, the things that are, you know, and that helps you start to see your community and your people uh, that live around you. And it also helps you start um, deciphering and discerning the, the questions and the problems that they are, are seeing, right? When you're doing these, some of these mapping things. And one of the things that we did early on was we, we, we kind of orient ourselves around three things. We, we say we, we worship together, we play together, and we solve problems together. And that's our way of uh, saying we love God, we love people, and we awaken a movement, which is the mission of Missio Church. But that's our way of saying it in a way that makes sense to the rest of our community. Because they get this idea of worship, even if they don't want to be a part of it. But they definitely understand play. And they definitely understand that there are problems in their community that they want to see solved. And so we would gather people. We gathered our whole neighborhood together. And we said, there is drug dealing that's going on. This is a real story. There's drug dealing that's going along right on the other side of my house with my kids running around and we're finding bags of pot and needles and stuff like that in our ivy. And we said, how can we solve this problem? And so we had the police come out and they said, here's some things we can do, create these things. And uh, about a year and a half later, I got a text from one of my police friends and he goes, hey, we got the guys, you know, because we were sending them license plates and car, you know, all that kind of stuff, description. I said, we got the guys, and they were running a drug ring huge in Seattle, and we were a small part of helping solve that problem. And so that's one way that you, you exegete your culture, is you say, hey, what are the things that you see that are wrong with this community? And then you say, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a pastor, and as one, I believe that we solve problems together. <laughs> right? It doesn't have to be... What's the problem? You don't believe. Let's solve that problem first. No, it's like, let's start solving the things that, that people feel like are real issues in their communities. Right. And that creates uh, openness and bridges into having spiritual conversation. Jared? Oh, sorry. Yeah. One, one big piece um, that you haven't shown the light on yet, but you have the big purple giant living alongside of the University of Washington. Oh, yes. Right on top of you. Yes. How... How is that? Uh, what what's what are the pros and cons of having whether it's a huge demographic of college students, yeah. one of the biggest universities in the country, yeah. and then also the academia side of that? How how are you adapting to that? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, we have a campus ministry team that's there starting a campus ministry, which is. They're doing some really cool things, but one of the biggest challenges is that, one, it is so secular at University of Washington. And uh, there's a video that went around on Facebook of this guy interviewing this person saying, you know, I want to tell you I am a Chinese woman, basically. And he's like, well, I can't tell you that you're not because this is, you know, this is, that's, you, you know, University of Washington to a T. And so there's that, and it's really challenging. But as you mentioned, the academic academia side of things, those students are like full on, they're there for their education. Mm -hmm. So time is very, very limited. 
And so we're trying to work with our campus ministry to say how can we how can we engage people on campus in the very few moments that they feel like they do have. So one of them is partnering, again, with um, partnerships are huge. Partnering with what God's already doing on the campus, not just through religious organizations, but through organizations. And so one of them is with um, a group that does work with um, domestic violence and human trafficking. And so our campus minister has spoken on panels with that, with that group from a, a faith perspective. And so we're just trying to find little moments where we can kind of insert ourselves into the life of that campus. But yeah, I mean, that is one that we're gonna be figuring out for a long time. Because not only are there 45,000 students at the University of Washington, there's about 40,000 employees. So I mean, it's a city unto itself. I mean, it's an incredible uh, place. So yeah. yeah. So having a building is a blessing, but it's also a huge distraction, especially with the mortgage. How are you dealing with it? Yeah, we don't have a building. Okay. So we rent a community center. One of the partners that we work with has a building. Um, and yeah, I don't know how they deal with it. But well, but renting is still a, a problem. Renting is a problem, yes. So. Um, What's the question? I'm sorry. What's the right? So how are you dealing with those logistics of oh, having to? We just pay rent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if we want to be in the city, if we want to be in the heart of where we are, we we make it a part of our budget. I mean, it's just it's a line item thing that we don't negotiate on, which means sometimes we have to find other ways to get other things. So our entire sound system was donated by another church. We had another church give us a trailer. And so we're figuring out other ways of getting things to fill our space. But the space itself is something that we know we're going to have to pay for because that's where we want to be, and it's worth being there. Um, so yeah, we, our church gives enough to pay for that. Anything else? <clears throat> well, thanks, guys. If you want to, uh, I don't know who wants to take those little things. If you fill out one of those little cards, you can bring it down to the front here. Um, just leave it on the, we, on the spot and pick them up. Oh, that'll be better. Yeah, we'll just, leave, we'll just pick them up. But uh, thanks, guys. Enjoy the week. Appreciate you being here.